Welcome to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen is honored to have with us debut novelist Jess Armstrong, whose book The Curse of Penrith Hall has won the Mystery Writers of America's most recent first crime fiction award. Before we begin, I'd like to let those tuning in know the Poison Pen will have a limited number of signed copies of The Curse of Penrith Hall. If you'd like one, please give us a call or go online. We'd be happy to hold one for you or put one in the mail while supplies last. Now I'd like to welcome Jess Armstrong. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's very Thank exciting. You. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm always fascinated by authors before they became published because there's almost a story there too. What can you tell us about Jess before you became a published author? Oh gosh, I I think I've been writing pretty much my whole life, but I did stop for a while. So I, the earliest memories I have of my childhood, I was writing books. I can remember being maybe like four years old and drawing these strange cat books that I would have and I would put them on the back of the table and I'm, my mother probably was exhausted by me running out of staples and paper, but I had, I was very proud of my books and I was always writing. And then I got really big into poetry in school and I was writing these. It was funny. I actually was talking to my, I, I have two children. I was talking to my son. He's like, when did you decide you wanted to write murder mysteries, mom? And I was like, with this book. And then I forgot that I actually started one of my first novels was like a, it was almost like a X-Files fan fiction in middle school because I was huge into X-Files. And so I was writing these like detective novels when I was like 13 years old and I'd forgotten completely about them. And as I got older, I just kind of went on and, and I went to college and I got busy and then I went to graduate school and I got tired of writing for me because I was writing for school and I was doing so much that I kind of put that part of my life away. And I just, I didn't, I didn't write again until I was probably 34 years old. Mm -hmm. So I went a huge span of time without writing creatively. Um, I got my master's in 2008, right when the economy crashed. And so <laughs> instead of going into museums, I mm -hmm. went into like jobs that would actually Hey. be able to pay me mm -hmm. and so I just kind of got away from that world and I got married and I had kids and it wasn't until I had my second child that I actually came back around to writing and I had this moment and I was like standing in the kitchen and I was like I'm 34 years old I'm too old to start writing because you see all these people that are like 19 they're 20 they're 25 these young debut writers and I'm like I'm like a mom. I can't like, when am I going to do this? And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, who says I can't do this? And so I just sat down one day and decided I was going to write a book. And that book got me, actually got me my first agent. It didn't sell. I had, <laughs> I, oh gosh, this is slightly embarrassing, but I had written, I think three or four books that were historical women's fiction. Mm -hmm. And they weren't mysteries at all. And I was trying to break into that market and it just was not working because my books were almost mysteries because oh. they kind of, they towed a little bit into mystery, but they weren't quite this and they weren't quite that. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up um, very amicably, I parted with my first agent because I, my books weren't selling. And so this book came about 
I wrote it because I wrote a book for me. I was tired of writing books. And I was like, I was tired of writing books that I thought were going to sell that didn't. And I'm like, I'm going to write what I want to read. I'm going to write the most bonkers, fun, gothic romp that I can dream up. And I was like, I want to write a gothic romp because I didn't want it to take itself too seriously. I wanted to be a little fun, a little tongue in cheek, but I wanted it to be a gothic novel. And I'm like, what in the world am I doing writing this book? <laughs> like, <laughs> who writes a funny gothic novel? I don't know. And it's not like, like, it's not funny, funny all the time, but it's no. not also taking itself too seriously either. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up submitting it to the first crime novel contest. And that's how I got here. And I had no expectations of it because it was this book. I'm like, what did I just write? <laughs> like, it's a mystery. There's a dead body. <laughs> um, for those that might not be familiar with the contest, it's um, held by the Mystery Writers of America. And what exactly is involved with that when you submit it and then you actually win? So I the contest opens in December. So it's open I think it may be open right now. So anybody with a completed mystery manuscript, if you've never been published um, and you can submit to the contest and it's judged by Mystery Writers of America and Minotaur Books and they select a winner, but they don't, I don't think they always select a winner every year. Um, I don't think they do. Um, But if they do, then you get a traditional publishing contract and that's where this book came from. So it, yeah, it, yeah, I submitted it in December and I found out it was March. It was the end of March. I found out, I got a call from my editor and it was like from a New York number. And I was like, oh gosh, it's going to be spam. But you know how your iPhone says possible spam? Mm-hmm. It didn't say possible spam. And so I'm like, I'm going to regret this. I'm going to regret answering this call. But I didn't. <laughs> it was like the best, like random number I've ever answered. So that um, brought you publication for the Curse of Penrith Hall. What can you tell us about the book without spoiling anything? Yeah. So the book set takes place in 1922 Cornwall. Um, my heroine is Ruby Vaughn. She is a disgraced American heiress who is living with this very eccentric 80-year-old bookseller in Exeter and he sends her off on these ridiculous jobs to carry books to people to go appraise manuscripts so she has this very interesting skill set she's interested in things um she's an antiquarian herself and she is very bored with life like she's had a very she's had a hard go of it her family was killed on the Lusitania and um she was in the Great War as an ambulance driver. And so she's just kind of bitter and broken. Solution. Yeah. yeah, after the war. And so she's just kind of hanging out in Exeter and he sends her off to Cornwall with this box of books. While she's there, she's confronted by this by the woman she used to love. She her best friend and her former love and lover, Tamsin Turner, who married Sir Edward who is a baronet in Cornwall. And so she goes out to deliver these books. And while she's there, she stops in to see Tamsin, who she hadn't seen in, I think, three years um, after Tamsin married Sir Edward. When she's there, 
It's dreadful. It's awful. She's concerned for Tamsin. The next morning, Edward has been brutally murdered, and Ruby is determined to figure out who did it. It's um, an amazing book because it blends a lot of different elements. There is mystery in it. There is a hint of the supernatural. There's a little bit of romance, too. And when you talked about your fascination with um, the X-Files, that kind of explains a lot of what's going on in the book. Um, how did you work all these elements in together? Because um, they all have to meld in the end. It was hard actually because I didn't I wanted to treat the supernatural as if it wasn't like magic for the sake of magic or supernatural like the ghost for the sake of ghost I wanted it to fit naturally into this world and I wanted Ruby to be a skeptic which she's a huge skeptic at the beginning of the book um and so it was really a balancing act and I have to admit so the one of the main characters is Ruin Kivel, who is the who is basically considered the village curse breaker. He is a peller. He is supposed to be able to figure out is this a curse or isn't this a curse? And he really is the reason this book took the supernatural bend that it took. Because I wanted initially Ruby to be a folklorist. So I wanted her to be, I knew I wanted to deal with folklore and I wanted her to be the one that was the expert. And when I was doing my research to figure out who Ruby was, I kept coming across Pellers. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need one. I need this character in my book. And so once I put him in there, he just kind of started eating up pages and he was taking over. And so he kind of infused the plot with the supernaturalness. And it really kind of brought the is there, isn't there a curse really to the forefront of it. It's done very well. And for readers who read mysteries and think, you know, that's not part of the genre, there are actually precedents for this book. I kept going back to The Hound of the Baskervilles, and you always wonder whether or not Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was making that real or just kind of hinting at the supernatural. So you do have some, some precedent for that in the book. That was my big worry, actually, with this book, <laughs> was <laughs> had I gone too far? <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's even today there's authors like I think early on Simone St. James did some books that kind of have elements of mystery or danger or suspense. And then there's also the supernatural and a little bit of romance. I am a huge Simone St. James fan. Like I it's funny, I didn't discover her until after I started working on this book and mm -hmm. somebody mentioned her and I started reading her her post-war but the ones that are set in the mm -hmm. 20s and I just inhaled them they're so good like her character work is just amazing another interesting thing about the book is the historical time period the 1920s because that was a period of change too much like after during world war ii and after women were given a lot more um roles to play Right. And I actually find the time period super interesting in and of itself, because you look at the First World War and you're starting a war basically where you have mounted cavalry at the beginning of the war and you have airplanes at the end of the war. And if you think about that, it's just mind blowing. Like the technological advances that happened in four years is just incredible. And then to try and imagine living in this world where you saw you had these imperial structures that were had been in place for hundreds of years, like 
the the map of Europe had been very much, I mean, it had changed over time, but like you had royal families, you had these imperial powers. This is what the world had been like. And then all of a sudden that's just cracked. And how do people make sense of that world? And to me, that was really fascinating about the time period. And layering into that, like the progress of women, of women getting starting to get the vote in different places, women trying to break free um, of these kind of patriarchal structures. It's just really interesting to me. Yeah. And so I really wanted to set it in this time, but I also didn't want to write a history book. So I was like, "Eh." (laughs) I didn't want it to take itself too seriously. Um, You don't, but you also, I mean, I think you do respect the time period and I'm guessing that comes from your background, your academic background in American history. Um, How did you go about researching the time period? Was there particular sources that you found useful? Um, How do you strike the balance between fiction and nonfiction? That is a very good question. So for me, I actually started, I have this kind of fascination with the First World War. And so long before I started writing this book, I was reading, I was reading like history books. I was reading, there's this one really great book, Wounded, that is, I forget who writes it, but she's a lady writer. She's a historian. And it looks at the medicine during the First World War through the different positions in the war. So you'd have like regimental medical officers, you'd have stretcher bearers, you'd have nurses. And it would be like a chapter that takes these stories, these people that talk about the war through the lens of medicine. It is just this groundbreaking. Like to me, I thought this was just like, this book blew me away. And like, it's so smart. Emily Mayhew. I'm pretty sure her name's Emily Mayhew. Um, Oh my gosh, such a great. um, And it's like a scholarly book, but it's just so fascinating. And it really gets into the human aspect of the war. And so I would read books like that. I would read um, memoirs. Like I read um, Siegfried Sassoon. I read Robert Graves. That's like, you know, I did my, I did my sad, my sad war poets phase. Like I was really, really into it um, because I really wanted to understand these people because the time period was so interesting. And I'm like, what was it like to live through that? Mm. And so I had been reading and reading and reading about this world for years before I read this book. And so the historical part was really kind of easier for me because I already had this kind of base level of knowledge of what the world would have been like in those first years after the war. But um, so it was a lot of fact checking more than anything else. The folklore aspect was a lot harder for me because I had not, I had to go actually do my primary source research. I was, well, sort of secondary, well, what I was doing is I was reading folklorists from like a hundred years ago and 200 years ago and reading their accounts to hear the stories they're collecting. So it's kind of like not quite primary source. It's like sort of collected oral histories maybe written down. I don't know how you, mm-hmm. how you classify that. Like it's, <laughs> but yeah. I admit I don't know a lot about folklore, probably very little, but I'm guessing that there are certain elements that are unique to certain geographic areas. So like, I guess one place might have pixies and another one might have trolls and things, all those different things. What was it about Cornwall that made its folklore unique? 
you know, it was funny to me is that it was different. It was slightly different. Like when you look at like every asset, like every place has its own folklore. And I was looking, I didn't want something that was super overdone, like something that people had done over and over again. And so I, I moved away from Scotland. Like I love Scotland. It's like, but I was like, mm, I'm not sure I want to do up here. There's been a lot of books in Scotland. I don't really want to do that. And I really wanted to do Wales. And so I started looking into Welsh folklore until I found my Peller. And I found the Peller and I'm like, oh, wait, I'm going further south. And it was really once I found that, I was just basically literally flipping through folklore books, like looking mm -hmm. for where I wanted to set it. That was something that just hadn't been overdone. Mm -hmm. It was it was a complete accident. <laughs> to be honest, happy happy accident, a I very guess. happy accident. But it was a complete accident that I set it in Cornwall. Um, setting is also important in the book. It's almost a character in itself um, in the Curse of Penrith Hall. Why Cornwall? I have some ideas, but let I'll let you kind of tell us. It was the folklore really that moved it, but also it's just so beautiful. Like I don't know if you've ever been to Cornwall. Oh my gosh. Like it is just the most beautiful place I think I've ever seen in my life. And I went to Tintagel actually, I was at Tintagel last summer and it was like, it was just breathtaking. Like everywhere you turn, if even it's raining, like we were at Tintagel last summer and it had like all weather patterns in one moment. Like it was sunny, it was cloudy, it was raining and spitting, it was hot and it was cold all in like a four hour span. And it was just so incredible. I'd never, I had never like really found a place so beautiful in my life. Yeah. Then we went, and then even like, we spent a day, we went to Bodmin Moor later on. And we, it was like my summer of trekking around um, because it was two summers ago now, but um, it's just like this magically beautiful place. And if I had not have already decided where I was setting the book, like it would have, I would have written a hundred more books set there just because it's so beautiful. Um, as you've said, and as other readers and reviewers and writers have mentioned, there's an element of Gothic to the book. How do you define Gothic? Because that can take a lot of different directions. Yeah, I, to me, Gothic, there's secrets. So there's, it's this kind of this long longevity of secrets of having like secrets and past and like things that have to unwind and also the connection between the past trauma and the present. And to me, that's really the, there's like this underscore of trauma between past and present to your to your current problem that makes something kind of Gothic. Um, there's also to me also there's like a psychological element like this kind of questioning of madness like of your own sanity of questioning your own beliefs in a way that's different than just like a regular questioning of your beliefs like questioning yeah. of like are my perceptions even accurate mm -hmm. as gothic too um and then it's moody like gothic novels are just all moody they all it's like there's like gotta be i mean there are always exceptions to the rules but there's like got to be a creepy house there's mm -hmm. got to be a woman in danger 
-hmm. there has to be morally gray figures of some sort um if we don't have somebody dramatically in danger i don't think it's a gothic novel mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean yeah. maybe it is but like there's these elements to it that are common in a lot of gothic novels and yeah, so it, it was wonderful um the way you managed them all um, let's talk about the writing process because you mentioned that you had tried writing before *The Curse of Penrith Hall*, so you're not. This was not your first stab at writing a novel, but it is under the broad genre of mystery. So I'm guessing, and this is, comes from a reader's perspective, that you kind of have to know certain things when you start out, like who the victim is, who the who the suspects are, how you want to shift um, misdirection in the story, but. There are some authors who say, no, I just sit down and let the story go. What was it like writing this book? This book, it was an adventure. Um, I am a notorious pantser. I vaguely know who did it. So I know who done it. Usually that's the hardest part. Um, I do not always know why. Um, and my red herrings, I really have to try really hard. So almost every time on my first draft, my, I don't have enough red herrings. And so I always end up having to add them back in. Um, but yeah, I'm so to tell you a little bit about my process, I'm also not a chronological writer. So I write completely mm -hmm. out of order, which is not something I would advocate if you're trying to learn to write. And if it works for you, great. Mm -hmm. If it does not work for you, please do not try to make it work for you because- <laughs> It's, it's just the way my brain works. I'll be working on a scene and then I'm like, oh, wait, I need to make so-and-so go over here and do this. So then I'll go pop over like five chapters back and move a character around, make notes to myself. Sometimes a bit of dialogue will pop into my head. And so I'll go, boom, I'll go flip somewhere else. It's, it's totally chaotic. I don't know why it works. Hmm. It makes revision a mess, but in the end, it turns out all right. That's interesting. You're right. Every author has their own approach and you have to find what works for you. Um, you've now published your first book. Mm -hmm. If you could go back to when you were first starting out, what advice would you give yourself as a starting writer? That's a good question. Um, hang in there because mm -hmm. this industry, the process, all of it's very hard. There are so many good books out there that are just waiting to be discovered. And it does not reflect on you if your book doesn't get picked up, that it's all getting the right book in front of the right person at the right time. And it's really just like, hang in there. If you wanna write this book, if you wanna break into the industry, just keep trying. And that is, I think what I would have told myself and not to take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> like not to take publishing personally you really got to grow a thick skin um in the process and i did not start out with a thick skin <laughs> it's really hard i think for creative part uh people because mm -hmm. there are things you can control and there are things you can't control and um you're right it's a matter of talent and luck and timing and everything clicking into place um let's shift gears a bit and talk about jess as a reader um, you've talked about your writing life. Who were some of the authors that um, over the years you've come back to and think, wow, I didn't realize this author was so important to me as a reader? Oh my gosh. I I have been reading 
like I have been a book woman my whole life and so it's like hard it's really hard to pick authors Mm -hmm. um I was obsessed with Anne Rice which probably should be no surprise Mm -hmm. knowing what I write that I was obsessed with Anne Rice for most of my my teen years (laughs) come (laughs) to think of it Anne Rice and Stephen King this makes a lot of sense now doesn't it um Mm -hmm. Also, the number of Patricia Cornwall books I read probably also makes a whole lot of sense <laughs> in retrospect. I never actually thought about that until this moment. Um, lately, I've been, I started actually reading a lot of romance, actually, okay. in like, mm, maybe like 2016. Like, I, they made me happy. Like I love genre yeah. books. I love genre yeah. books because they make me happy. They've got like I know at the end the bad guy is gonna get it mm-hmm. and the love interest will be together. And that's why I love genre. I need that. I need to know that if I'm putting the emotional investment into what I'm reading, mm-hmm. I need to know that everything's gonna be okay by the end. And that to me, that's really important. And I know like I know everybody has their own taste, but for me, like that's why I love genre. Like the genre promise makes me happy and and I'll go on any adventure with any character so long as I know that in the end I'm going to be safe and that's also one of the things I love we were talking about Simone St. James earlier because she has this ability to scare you to death but in the end you're safe everybody Mm -hmm. everything ends up okay Mm -hmm. at the end of the book and it's this ride and Oh my gosh, I've had to sleep with my lights on after reading yes. one of her books because they're terrifying. Oh, the one about the school for girls that was like, oh my God, that one, yeah. The one the one that I made the mistake of reading when I was spending the night, uh, we were visiting family in Indiana. We were in the farm. It's very dark in the country. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm upstairs all by myself reading, oh, is it Silence for the Dead that's set mm-hmm. at the... Um, at like the hospital for the Mm -hmm. war wounded. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that book scared me to death. I'm like, great. I'm like hiding under a blanket, reading this book on my phone. And I could not put it down. I'm like, what am I doing to myself? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, she's amazing. I'm a huge fan. But you know, at the end, things are going to come together. So that's why I had to keep reading. I had to Yeah, it's different if everyone dies and then you're like, okay, that was not worth three hours of my life or something, but yeah. Um, so what other newish authors have you found that you are saying you should read this? Oh gosh, who, what did I just read recently? Um, I actually been reading older books. Like I read, um, not older, but Diana Biller's Widow of Rose. Widow of Rose yes, Rose. that's another wonderful Gothic. Love that book. And Diana Village, another one of those writers is just like, oh, I would follow her anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading an arc of one of my friends, A Sweet Sting of Salt. It's also a gothic. It's coming out in the spring. It's a feminist retelling of the Selkie wife. And um, it's beautiful. Like, it is so beautiful. I'm about halfway the, through that right what's now. What's the title of that? A Sweet Sting of Salt. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's coming out. Um, but it's in the... It was in, it's in like, I think either March or April of 24. So it's actually isn't that far away, but not at all. (laughs) Um, I know it's funny when I got my publication date for this December 23 seems so far away, but now Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, tomorrow. I mean, not tomorrow, but, um, let me think I had something else that I read recently that was so good, but yeah, I've been on like this huge Simone James kick lately. Um, 
Have you ever gone back and read the classic gothics like Victoria Holt or Mary Stewart or? Not, and I know this is probably going to revoke my gothic card, but I have not actually read Rebecca. I have, I right, know. We, we have to end the conversation. I right? know, I'm in trouble. You're like, you're done, Jessica. <laughs> you're done. But no, I know. It's, it's like, it's shameful. Like I watched Rebecca mm -hmm. and I haven't read it. And it, I'm going to have to go fix that. Yeah. But for me, like my reading time, like I have just like a finite amount of reading and my pile nice. gets larger and larger. Mm -hmm. And so like, sometimes if I watch something, I may not read it right away, but I'm, yeah. I will fix this before I'm like, I'm kicked no, out of the gothic um, club. <laughs> you just, you, you have that opportunity waiting you. We'll put it that way instead of you haven't finished it. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the moment, <laughs> but no. <laughs> I'll be no, I know. I'm, I'm ashamed. <laughs> yeah. She's an, she's an author like you that really kind of doesn't play in just one genre she likes to blur the lines so you see a lot of things happening in many of her books it's one of my favorite things about books like I love a genre blending book does that make it more challenging for does your publicist say why can't you just write a mystery why can't you just write it's harder to market to readers because or does it kind of open the door to other readers saying well I normally don't read mysteries but I like the historical period so I'll try it We'll see. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Um, so far, um, I plan to stay kind of in this lane as long as people want to read them. And I think there's a readership out there for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the kind of, this is the stuff that I was looking for. And like, I'm finding it. And like, when I find it, I like grab on like, oh, it's another one. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm really happy to kind of be in this niche. And hopefully readers also want to read in that niche because I'm happy to write there as long as people will read it well I was very happy to discover it it reminded me a lot of um I was a big fan of Barbara Michaels and Elizabeth Peters and her books that she wrote in the 70s 80s 90s and she kind of also especially as Barbara Michaels would blend romance with a whisper of superstition or supernatural and suspense and things like that um before we run out of time and I can't believe how quickly it's gone by this is up to you how much, or if you're even willing to tell us about what might be coming next from you as an author. Yeah, so about in fall of 24, so next year, the mm -hmm. next Ruby Vaughn book will be coming Oh, she's out. coming back, oh good. Coming back. Um, Ruby is going to Scotland, speaking of Scotland, wow. with Mr. Owen, and it's going to be an adventure. <laughs> Um, is there a bookseller antiquarian friend still along for the ride? Um, Mr. Owen? Yeah. Yes, he's coming. Mr. Owen's coming. Um, and the Peller will make an appearance as well. He is oh. also coming for reasons. So. That's great. Um, it will be an adventure. <laughs> aside from writing, you have another life outside that. Um I heard that you have a passion for cheese. What is that about? I love cheese. How <laughs> <laughs> can anyone not love cheese? Um, mm. But yeah, no, yeah, I love cheese. It's it's probably unhealthy. I literally um, have like a coffee mug with cheese on it. It's <laughs> cheese and sheep. It's it's really kind of sad. But um, I have some 
we have some friends here in New Orleans and we go and we will get like cheese and we'll have cheese dates. It's really kind of, uh, two years ago, because my husband also does documentary stuff and oral histories. He was doing oral histories with cheesemakers. And so we actually spent a month in the UK while he was interviewing cheesemakers. I was eating the cheese. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm always happy to go along. If there's cheese, I'm there. That's the perfect marriage. Um, how can readers learn more about you and your books? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? I am. My website is writingjust.com and I am on Instagram and threads and the site formerly that was Twitter, but I'm less active there nowadays, but, um, I'm at just L underscore Armstrong on all three of those. That's wonderful. This time has just flown by. We've been very fortunate to have with us Jess Armstrong, whose first published book, The Curse of Penrith Hall, will be out in just mere days in December. Um, Order a copy from The Poison Pen or from your local independent bookstore or suggest your library purchase it. It's truly a unique and remarkable book. I'd like to thank Jess for taking time to be with us today and for everyone listening in. Thank you for joining The Poison Pen for another author chat. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.